Welcome to the second episode of my new podcast, America's Recap. I'm Vishnu Malhotra, and I'm a high school sophomore who's interested in politics and current events. I'm here with my dad, Dr. Vikas Malhotra, who's an oncologist at Florida Cancer Specialist. Every week, we come here to give a uh, weekly recap of the week's most important stories, and we offer some analysis and interpretation along the way. We're going to start with what happened on last Saturday, which was April 11th, and uh, on that date, on Saturday, the U.S. became the country with the most coronavirus deaths in the world, with the figure topping 20,000 deaths. In addition to that, Jerome Adams, who was the who is the U.S. Surgeon General, made comments on last Friday about the disparity amongst minorities being more vulnerable to the coronavirus. These comments have come under scrutiny from some progressives, and I'm going to read out what he said uh, right now. The comments were, do it for your granddaddy, do it for your big mama, do it for your pop pop. We need you to understand, especially in communities of color, we need you to step up and help stop the spread so that we can protect those who are most vulnerable. So here, Adams is talking to minorities specifically about how to curb the spread of the virus. And critics argued that uh, these comments were stereotypical and that they held minorities to a higher standard. I'm going to offer my opinion here. I don't think that he really meant any harm by those comments. I don't think they're really stereotypical in what they were saying. It's a noble cause to help minorities during this time, especially when they're the ones being most affected. What do you think? Yeah, hi. Thanks, Vishnu, for having me. Uh, I agree with you completely. I think... uh... This is a time where everybody needs to do whatever they can to help stem the tide of the virus. So his comments were made in very good spirit. Uh, We need to look at the spirit of the comments rather than the timing or the words of the context. Right. Uh, And then moving on from there, a new study from biotech company Gilead Sciences shows promise in remdesivir, which is a drug that could be effective in treating coronavirus. Here's how the study went down. Out of the 53 patients in the study, 36 had improved conditions, 8 worsened, and 7 died. This death rate, which is 13%, is notably lower than the 17 to 78% death rate among those that are severely effective. Uh, The study shows a lot of promise, but it's a very brief introduction. Uh, I know you are an oncologist, so what do you take on this? Yeah, so in our medical science, our gold standard is always randomized control trials, which means that things where we have studied in a fashion where people are divided into two groups, one half or a certain percentage of the group gets the active drug, the other one gets placebo or a secondary drug, And that's what gives us the most confidence that the drug is effective. Now, these are single-agent studies. That's the best data we have. So certainly encouraging, but not the gold standard yet. Okay, that's a good sign. Uh, And then last news from Saturday, for the first time in U.S. history, every U.S. state was under an emergency disaster declaration amidst the pandemic. Uh, And also one last piece, the CDC finally extended its no-sale order for cruise ships months after the pandemic began. Critics marked this as being too late, but um, at the same time, the stocks for Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Norwegian all fell on Monday. Uh, Moving on to Sunday, uh, which was Easter Sunday, by the way, the majority of churches remained closed for one of the uh, very notable moment in U.S. history. The White House held a virtual event to celebrate the day, 
and notably Pope Francis uh, talked about the sorrow and hardship that the pandemic had inflicted amongst all of us. Uh, moving on to Britain, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson was released from the hospital on Sunday where he was being treated for coronavirus. Last week, the world experienced a scare when Johnson was suddenly taken into the ICU as a precaution. In addition, former CDC head Tom Frieden, under the uh, Obama administration, unveiled his idea for his plan to reopen the American economy. That's the biggest story of this week, and that's the, where the most discussion has been going on. His plan involves the following. Number one, which is to test a large majority of Americans. Number two, which is to isolate the infected. Three, which is to trace the interactions between those infected and everyone else. And four is to quarantine all infected patients. We're going to talk about this later. There are a lot of different plans on how to reopen the economy and how to move ahead with the virus. And it's a very interesting discussion. And also on Sunday, Chinese wet markets started to reopen, sparking very harsh criticism from U.S. and global officials who were appalled at the lack of Chinese awareness towards the virus. So wet markets are localized open-air markets where produce and live animals are on sale. There are also where butchering, packaging, and sales all occur in a small space. It's believed to be an incredibly unhygienic practice for selling food, and it is also believed to be the start um, of the virus in a wet market in Wuhan. What's your take on them reopening the markets? Absolutely. Well, we're very sensitive to local cultures and practices, but whenever such practices are a threat to the entire world economy and health of the people around the world, it has to be. And I think there's enough saying voices uh, in China and around that this will eventually come to a stop, I hope, sooner than later. Right, I agree. Uh, then let's move on to the week's news, starting on Monday, when the East and West Coast states will announce that they'll be uniting in two separate uh, groups to jointly address the issue of reopening the country. Uh, the group on the East Coast consists of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. And the West Coast Union is made up of California, Washington, and Oregon. These unions will aim to devise plans to slowly end stay-at-home orders. And then later this week, we saw them unveil some of those plans. Um, Bernie Sanders endorsed Joe Biden for president days after ending his campaign. Sanders will work with Biden to improve several policy proposals while simultaneously encouraging his supporters to back Biden. I think this is a very important thing. Last The week before, we saw him leave the race but not publicly endorse Biden. Uh, and then this Tuesday, we saw Warren also endorse Biden. It's, I think it's a good move for the Democratic Party overall. Um, and then... Uh, in addition to that, critics across the political spectrum have continued their harsh attacks on the Chinese government, which is coming under intense scrutiny for, an, for its extremely low number of reported deaths. China, with a population of 1.4 billion, has reported just over 3,000 deaths, while the U.S. has reported over 22,000. Um, so the, the problem with this is, you know, it's hard to determine whether or not China is being genuine in these figures because they're certainly very staggering if they're true. At the same time, China was able to shut down Wuhan relatively quickly. So, you know, it's always a possibility. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think, uh, as I've always said, democracies are very messy things, but still the best things we've got. And that's one of the problem when you have single political party and government structures, there is no reliability or trust in what comes out of there. And even my dear Chinese friends uh, 
who uh, have uh, been living in the U.S. Uh, share that opinion. The second point is if you look after the pressure, the death rate in Wuhan was revised 50% upwards a few days ago. So clearly, I think uh, we should take that with a grain of salt. And as difficult as the public discourse is in the United States, we should be thankful that we have a myriad of voices that people are able to say the point. So eventually, truth always prevails. That's a very good point. Very good addition. Uh, and then the last piece of news from Monday, this is very important news that wasn't discussed that heavily. Uh, South Dakota will become the first state to hold statewide clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine, uh, the suspected treatment for one of the suspected treatments for uh, coronavirus. Every South Dakotan with COVID-19 will be given the option to use hydro, uh, sorry, hydroxychloroquine as a treatment, which will allow the state to widely monitor results. Uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think it's a great move. Here's the problem. My friends who are at the front lines of fighting the COVID epidemic are telling me that the currently the cl clinical trials are very fragmented, means that there are 10 people doing the same study. When you want an answer, you want a certain number of patients tested, this is exactly the time where national leadership is required. I would urge the president to appoint a czar for COVID response, a physician preferably, no. who can actually coordinate centrally. It could be Dr. Fauci or somebody else. There is only one trial across the country that needs to be done with hydroxychloroquine that can enroll 1,000 patients, and it should be very easy to enroll. Mm -hmm. So rather than having these fragmented efforts all over the country, it is paramount that we get this done in a coordinated fashion quickly. That's an excellent point, actually. And then we're going to continue on that later. But now uh, let's move on to Tuesday to the Democratic race where former President Barack Obama officially endorsed Joe Biden for President of the United States. Uh, this is the, the series of notable endorsements that occurred over the last week, which will spur Biden to the Democratic nomination in June. Uh, President Trump announced that he will halt all further U.S. funding of the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, until an investigation is completed into, uh, this is President Trump's quote, the organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of coronavirus. Um, specifically, Trump is upset with the WHO's move to oppose travel restrictions from China in the first few months of the pandemic due to the possible economic fallout as a result. Uh, just to keep in context, the U.S. is the WHO's largest contributor, providing more than 22% of all funding. Um, I think uh, this is a little bit of a premature move in the sense that the criticism around the starting of the pandemic is very hypocritical because almost all officials across the spectrum were downplaying the pandemic. Even, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans in Congress were both opposing these travel restrictions until it became clear that the pandemic was worsening. What do you think? Yeah, I think the uh, issue is that uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. when you look back. So I, I, I really don't think we should be focusing on the negativity at this time. I really think, yes, there are problems with China's response in China's uh, transparency. Absolutely, no question. And I think that's hampered WHO. So I think there will be a time to assign blame. This is absolutely the wrong time to be pulling funds. WHO does do a critical role. Remember, the main message from this pandemic is there are no countries that are protected or isolated or safe from anything. We all have to work together. I would really, at this time, rather appeal to the good side of all countries to say, listen, 
this is not the time for partisan blame. Right. Uh, in an interesting piece of news, Trump uh, demanded that all the mailed checks from the federal stimulus program will bear his name. Now, these are the checks that are going to people who don't have bank accounts, who haven't or who haven't filed federal tax returns or who are on Social Security. Um, these checks will bear his name. And I think it's very interesting in the sense that this is definitely a move for the 2020 election to paint a positive image in his name. And I'm not painting it as a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying it shows how this pandemic is going to play a very, very important role in shaping the election in November. In educational news, more than 51 universities and colleges have dropped the SAT and ACT requirements for students who will be admitted in the fall of 21, which is current high school juniors. Uh, this is a very important, more important than it comes at face value, because um, there's a lot of talk in the educational community about how these SAT and ACT requirements may start to be permanently phased out over time because uh, a lot of people have pointed to the standardized testing not being a good determiner of uh, you know a student's intelligence and more and more colleges have stopped started to not require that what do you think about I, I think there are pros and cons certainly college mm -hmm. readiness is a difficult uh, issue to always assess appropriately there has to be some sort of standard that we have to hold everybody to. And if this is not it, then we need to come up with a different, maybe academic success in high school or certain other mixed variety of criteria may be required. But by and large, SAT has served well in terms of, uh, I would say, understanding of basics and a certain critical amount of knowledge of English, math, and processing ability. Mm, so. Fair point, yeah. Uh, and then let's go on to... Wednesday, where U.S. national intelligence and security officials announced that they'll be launching an investigation into whether or not the coronavirus originated from a Chinese lab facility instead of the wet market that has been settled on as the origin. The officials will be investigating the possibility that the Wuhan Institute for Virology, among other institutions, may have accidentally released the virus. I think this is very important because it, in a sense, it legitimizes the uh, conspiracy theories ha that have been going on for the past few months, those had little credibility in the sense that people were just speculating that the virus may have been released from the uh, market. But now there's a federal investigation. What do you think? And I, I know that you think that uh, it's not as important to talk about during this time, which is true, but it's still an important topic. Yeah, no, I, I think we, this this issue will definitely need resolution. Uh, currently, we have no data to support that claim, but I think the job is squarely in the hands of the U.S. intelligence agencies. They need to do their due diligence, and I think the truth, like I said, will come out. Yeah. So, And that will be important, because if it was either an accident that happened from bioweapons lab or malicious, which will be a lot worse, there are huge implications to it. Right. Uh, and then moving on from that, in the worst decline ever demonstrated in U.S. history, the retail sector reported an 8.7% decline over the past month, which lowered stock prices on Wednesday. Restaurants in particular posted a 26.5% loss. This comes as fears of small businesses starting to close uh, continue to mount. New York also ordered all residents to wear a face mask in situations where social distancing would not be possible, like grocery shopping, walking, any form of travel. 
and the college board canceled the June SAT administration. The agency is now looking to the possibility of an online option for distribution if the virus continues to impact in school, uh, in-person schooling in the fall. This is, uh, again, moving on from uh, what I said earlier about colleges not accepting the SAT. This is very interesting because it's changing the dynamic around how students tackle testing. So I can tell you right now that the AP tests, which are advanced placement courses for high school students, have already been moved online. I'm going to be taking one in a little under a month. And it's very interesting how they're going to be tackling it. What's your take on doing more things at home, like in terms of jobs and testing? Well, the it, it's a mixed uh, report on that. I think there is a certain amount of uh, standardization which requires ideal and same testing conditions for all students. And I don't think that can be recreated at home. So eventually when this is over, we will need to go back to uh, some sort of standardized testing. So we can actually have the same scale for everybody. It's a very simple concept. I mean, we don't want to make it worse or better for some people. So I think for right now it is okay. We have to adapt because this is unprecedented and we certainly don't want to put the safety of our students and children in, 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 in harm's way. You know? Right, that's true. Uh, and then the last piece of news from Wednesday, this broke very late Wednesday and it developed more into Thursday, but the U.S. government's emergency loan program for small businesses uh, was nearing bankruptcy on Wednesday night. As some of you may know, on Thursday it officially declared that it had ran out of funds, but I'll explain what happened. This program, which is known as the Economic Industry Injury Disaster Loan Program, was severely underfunded by Wednesday. Uh, this program was given $349 billion in funding, and by Thursday morning it had ballooned to more than $372 billion in applications. These are uh, part of the emergency loans, uh, up to $10,000 for small businesses who apply. There was a far greater number of businesses who actually applied for the loans, and now Congress is trying to appropriate funding. And uh, Thursday, this was probably the biggest news of the week, Trump unveiled his plan to reopen the U.S. economy, uh, and let me explain that very quickly. Basically, it involves each state governor deciding on their own will as to when and how aggressive their respective reopening will be. After a downturn for 14 consecutive days in the number of cases in each state, that state will be recommended to begin to allow the openings of restaurants, workplaces, and gyms as, as long as they strictly practice social distancing measures. This is called part one. Part two involves uh, schools and non-essential employers allowing employees to return to work if need be. It's still encouraged that employers work people from home, but it will be allowed that they come in for work. And then phase three will involve in removing these restrictions even further and allowing um, uh, like educational facilities and even more uh, open air places to reopen. Uh, and we're going to get more on this later, but I want to hear what your opinion is. Well, I, I think it's a mistake. I, frankly, I think this has to be a national effort. As I've said on the last edition of the program, I have a very simple five-step program, which actually will alleviate a lot of this problem. The first step has to be universal testing. We need the project, the size of the Manhattan Project, to produce 300 to 330 million tests so that every American can be tested in a relatively short span of time. Now, once we know who are infected, 
we have to have an effective quarantine program. People who are very sick get in a hospital. Non-sick people are placed in isolated settings like hotels or converted buildings so they cannot spread the virus. Third step, everybody else can go back to work. And fourthly, we have to have a team of doctors and healthcare providers who can be at a site of potential outbreak very quickly. And then lastly, we need to be very, very proactive with when people go back to work, they have to be, there has to be universal masking. Very simple things like that, checking a temperature for everybody when they come into work, very simple to do, or even in gatherings. I mean, if you have social settings where people are gonna gather, they should be encouraged, not encouraged, mandated rather, to have a simple temperature check with the laser thermometers that don't even require hardly a second or two and can be very effective. So that's the way we're gonna do it. Basically, identify the entire population who has the active virus and we'll not be 100% effective in that, but 90 to 95% we're gonna capture it and then the rest of the economy can get back. Yes, it will cost us probably half a um, trillion to a trillion dollars, but that the cost of saving money, getting back people to work quicker, with, in the long run, we're actually gonna save money. So I, I, I think this really has to be identified as a priority number one. It's gonna take national leadership. I'd urge the president and the cabinet to be, to be very proactive, but doing it partisan in a state-by-state -state fashion is not gonna work. Yeah, I completely agree, especially on the uh, topic of testing a lot or more than uh, five studies came out this week from numerous universities talking about how extensive testing may need to be to reopen the economy. And some of those studies were predicting making up to uh, five million tests per day so that you can continuously uh, test all Americans for not only having the infection, but also on if they have the uh, antibodies to protect it against them later. This is something that I don't think has been discussed as well because it's a very difficult topic to ramp up testing and it's something that you know may not even be possible in the U.S. Uh, let's move on from there to the stimulus program from the U.S. government. Uh, that's this $1,200 stimulus check program for each American adult over the age of 18. Uh, it has faced a lot of problems over the past few uh, days and weeks as thousands of recipients have received the incorrect amounts of money or have not re received the money at all. In some cases, people who are now deceased are receiving the check and foreign college students who are not citizens of the US are also receiving said funds even when many college students who are citizens are not eligible for the payments. The website that the IRS released has been reported as ineffective and frustrating because uh, for individuals who cannot receive the checks, the site does not ever offer an explanation as to why. Um, the good news to point out is that a lot of the payments have already been doled out and a lot of it has been successful, but it's also important to cover some of the criticisms involved with the program. I, I, I would be more generous than that I, because I think that these are, again, massive programs for an unprecedented rate that are needing to be done. So I, I understand that we need to be as precise as possible, but this will happen. You know, this is involving uh, the whole population of the country and some mistakes will happen. So I'm not too worried about it. Okay, fair, fair. Um, and then uh, New York on Thursday extended their social distancing measures until May 15th, uh, pointing to Trump's goal of each state handling their respective situation differently. And then let's go on to our last day, Friday, where Texas and Florida jumped on reopening plans uh, for reopening the states 
after Trump announced his plan for reopening the nation, Texas will be opening their parks. They will be letting their physicians perform delayed diagnostic tests for non-critical patients, and they will allow retailers to resume in-person sales with proper protection measures. Uh, and then Florida will be reopening some local beaches, um, in the opinion of local officials. And on the coming days, Florida will announce more reopening measures. I think uh, that the decision to open beaches is a poor move, really, because considering how it's a uh, how it's a recreational activity, I think it'll just uh, help to further stem the rate of spreading the infection in close gatherings. What do you think? Yeah, this piecemeal approaches are not going to work, Vishnu. You know that we have to have a comprehensive national plan. It is not going to be effective if you open up one area and second. So as I said before, testing, 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 and then we'll need to be accustomed to living like this for the next year to 18 months till the vaccine comes out. The vaccine is making progress. It will get done. But uh, and we even got some encouraging word that maybe it'll be less than a year, which will be phenomenal. But I think the one year time frame where we'll need to find a way is only solved by testing. There's no other scenario that I can see that. Okay. And then moving on from there, in a widely unexpected move, NASA announced that it will be sending astronauts from the Florida Space Coast on May 17th. This will be the first time since 2011 that NASA will again launch a space shuttle from U.S. soil. However, this time it's very different because instead of NASA overseeing the project, SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's space uh, exploration company, will be tasked with managing and sending their rocket from the coast. The USDA also announced that it will spend $19 billion on a food assistance program that will aim to provide direct payments to farmers and ranchers who, are, who have suffered due to the lower food demand from the closure of restaurants, among other venues. And from the last piece of news from Friday, this is something that has been going on actually over the last few weeks. An ancient programming language known as COBOL, C-O-B-O-L, has been crippling numerous government systems regarding the stimulus checks, unemployment filings, and small business loans. COBOL is a computer programming language that was developed back in 1959. It continues to be used in agencies like the IRS because the investments have never been made to actually improve that system. And the problem is that there are very, very few programmers around today who still know that language, and it's caused a huge shortage in the amount of people who can help to fix these problems surrounding uh, the issues with such programs. I thought it might help to give some insight on what's been happening. I have a very interesting anecdote about it. Uh, back around the early 1970s, Vishnu, when I was probably maybe six, seven years, eight years old, uh, my dad, your grandpa, mm -hmm. was actually one of the programmers working on the COBOL language in Delhi. Delhi had just one computer. He would get assigned a number of hours. He was doing statistical modeling for agricultural produce. Mm -hmm. And he would travel sometimes early morning, sometimes late at night, because there was one computer in the entire country probably at the time. And they were using the time very wisely. And it would spit out this data in forms of these massive reams of paper that when it was done and the spare paper would come to us and we would either use it for our math, math, math work or do other things, make boats or airplanes. But it was just, but it's right. COBOL was a very solid language. COBOL and Fortran were some of the original languages written. It is true that it needs to be updated. But the problem is when you have so much data written on it, 
from the get-go. It, it's going to take time. This is not the time for that. That's actually, Our priority yeah. is uh, other, other issues right now. That's actually true. Um, and if it helps you to understand, uh, if it helps you to understand, the banking industry also uses COBOL as well, um, just because of the amount of data that they have and uh, how difficult it would be to switch over. So that's the recap on the week's news. Now we're going to tackle just a few uh, very important uh, discussion questions from uh, the biggest news over the past few weeks. Uh, for these questions, I wanted to look away from the coronavirus pandemic because it's been uh, you know, taking over headlines and I feel like that's all that people hear. I wanted to take a look at some of the ramifications of the pandemic and things that may be affected by it. So the first question I have for us is, should stock buybacks continue to be legal in the United States? Let me give some background on this. A stock buyback occurs when a company buys back its shares from the marketplace. The effect of a buyback is to reduce the number of outstanding shares on the market, which increases the ownership stake of the shareholders. Basically, it's the company buying back its own shares, reducing the amount on the market and increasing its stock price as a result. Stock buybacks actually used to be illegal in the U.S. until 1982, when the SEC, unsurprisingly, under the Reagan administration, chose to legalize stock buybacks. Now, the reason I'm asking this question is because it's been a lot of controversy recently how the airline industry has spent hundreds of billions on buybacks over the past 10 years, and they're receiving about a $50 billion payback or bailout. Uh, these the money that was spent on buybacks could have been used to save themselves now um, and but clearly it was spent on the buybacks instead the reason that people are against it and think that it should be made illegal again is because almost half of all corporate profits in the US go towards buying back a respective company shares instead of reinvesting in the company what's your take on this well, I think it is a very legitimate uh, enterprise uh, in the free market. The issue is if the government gives a bailout, yes, then we should absolutely restrict that money should not be used for buybacks at all for a period of time. But independent of that, the companies do this as a very reasonable ploy to shore up the cost, uh, their uh, uh, stock value. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, uh, let me just try to explain some of the cons that have been noted out as a result of stock buybacks. What it's doing in essence is, like I explained earlier, buying back shares from the marketplace and increasing your price. The problem with that, uh, as a lot of companies have seen very recently, is that it tends to artificially increase the stock price on the market. Uh, and this can occur even as a company's financial situation is severely worsening. Uh, and it can trick investors into investing in that company at a higher price than it should be worth. This sounds like it's not too bad, but the problem happens when every single company is doing this, everyone is buying in at too high a share, and then someone reveals what's happening. Like someone understands that the companies are overvalued and then the market crashes. And a lot of people think that this may have been a significant factor in the recent market crash this year. Does it change your opinion or what's your well, thoughts? Well, I, I think as long as, see, uh, good capitalist systems require oversight, okay? Whenever there is total lack of regulation, there is going to be greed taking over and people making I, I what I think is a fast buck at the cost of the, um, the rest of the people of the U.S. government. So 
I, I, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it when it's done with proper oversight. Okay, uh, we will agree to disagree on that respect. Uh, let's move on to our second discussion question. And this is something that's been very interesting regarding President Trump and his administration. And it is, should the USPS, the US Postal Service, continue to exist? Uh, let me explain some of the background of the Postal Service. Uh, it's been around since 1971. Um, and it serves as a sort of a universal shipping service for all U.S. home addresses. It has to deliver to every single individual's home, and it has to do that at the same cost to the consumer uh, versus delivering somewhere maybe in a city or something. That's the crucial part of this is that the US, USPS allows for rural customers to access a shipping service when normally for-profit companies would not go out into these rural areas. Those are the pros. The cons are that the USPS has lost a combined $120 billion since its inception in 71. And the loss is due to a multitude of factors. It helps to understand the context. For one, the USPS is heavily limited by Congress because they need to vote on nearly every bill uh, or nearly every major change for the agencies. This means uh, and this has happened, is that anytime the USPS wants to do any money-saving measures like closing down redundant offices, restructuring retirement, or increasing prices, they have all been denied by Congress, and it's been forced to sort of hemorrhage this money. And in addition, in 2006, the USPS was forced into a very arbitrary rule by Congress, which mandates that they have to prepay pension benefits nearly 70 years into the future. No other company or government agencies required to do this and barely anyone does voluntarily. And because of that program alone, they've lost 5.5 billion per year. Um, at the same time, they provide a very important service. So it's kind of a toss up. What's your take? Yeah, I think the US Postal Service is an essential service. There is no way we're going to do without it. But clearly, they need to manage their funds better. So there is some restructuring that is required and we may need to cut benefits. The Postal Service has been phenomenal. And I'll tell you, coming from the context of Postal Service from India, where I grew up, U.S. Postal Service is like a godsend. I mean, you know, the mail gets delivered. It gets delivered mainly on time. They show up. And as regards to a lot of the other countries, I can tell you that the Postal Service is not reliable. So I'm actually a big advocate for them. True that as a country, we may need to provide them some subsidy, but it's a very small percentage of our GDP. They need to be efficient. Yes, mm -hmm. there is wastage. In, but, you know, like you said, mailing essential prescriptions to odd areas, mailing, um, you know, bills uh, sometimes. So and, and for people who cannot afford the private courier. And plus, remember, they are a competition to UPS and FedEx. So right. if they were out of the game, the cost would go up dramatically for UPS and FedEx. Right. So I say they stay, but they need to Very be more efficient. Point. I do agree. I think they should stay. But I think a major change, this is a little controversial, but I think a major change they should undergo is completely forego all congressional oversight, meaning that uh, like uh, certain other government programs, they would be allowed to make their own decisions regarding finances and regarding restructuring of the company. I think that would help them better manage their finances and make it, you know, a, a, a surplus program. I agree. At the end of the program, we would like to do a little twist today and actually bring two people who are directly affected by this COVID shutdown. One is an elementary schooler, uh, my nephew, Mayank, and then my niece, 
Samia, who's a high schooler. We want to just get their opinions on it, so I'm going to try to get them on the line. Hey, Mayank, are you there? Yes. How are you today? I'm good. Well, so distance learning is, is it's so much, it, so there's so much screen time that, that at the end of the day, my eyes are burning and <laughs> they have so much homework, which is a lot of screen time too. Uh -huh. So uh, you you are you liking staying at home or you don't like staying at home and what is, are, is your learning as good as it was? I love staying at home because I like to watch TV cartoons all Saturday morning and all Saturday evening and all Saturday night. But but what about your learning? Are you learning as well as you used to uh, before COVID? I'm learning, but uh, is it it's boring? So long <laughs> but how is the technology? You think the technology is good? I mean, how's your experience as far as learning goes? Does it feel like you're in a classroom or it doesn't really feel like that? It doesn't really feel like that. It feels like I'm in, like, I'm like in, in some, some, some place where I'm a slave. Oh. Ah, we're sorry, Mike. Hopefully this will be over soon. But it, remember, it's important while we're in this uh, pandemic, you still must get some exercise, obviously with social distancing, but get out there, maybe a little bike ride, a little walk, uh, stay active and get some sun. I, I did go for a bike ride. Awesome, awesome. And can I talk to Soumya for a minute? Vishnu's going to ask her a few questions. Hi. Hi, Soumya. Here's Vishnu. Hey, Soumya. Uh, we just wanted hey. to... We wanted to get some feedback on how your uh, high school experience is going. Give me a quick rundown of how you feel about online schooling versus in school. Alright, so there's definitely pros and cons, and I've actually made a list of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, in our district, we've actually resorted to doing no grades in just a pass-fail system, which has definitely reduced my stress a lot because... I can focus more on just learning a concept now than having to get a grade. You also realize, like, it's okay to make mistakes on things, and, you know, you end up learning more, in my opinion. Um, however, there is less structure, and so you have to do a lot of self-disciplining to get yourself to, like, work and, you know, get your things done. Because I've seen that I've started procrastinating a lot more now that I have more time to do things, and I don't really have to make things a priority anymore. Well, those are good points. One uh, issue Vishnu and I were discussing earlier was about what do you think of our standardized testing? It's possible that the SAT, ACT may go away, at least for college entrance. Uh, do you think that they should be there or the standardized testing should go? Um, it's difficult to say because obviously like, there can be cheating happening, but I think it's, it's an important assessment because it's, you know, it gauges students academic skills across the country, it's very, like, it's important for colleges to understand where students are at on a common ground. So I think it should go on because that's how colleges will start to understand, like, where students place. And, yeah. yeah, I agree. That's the same point I said. I said some standard testing has to be there because we have to know one college readiness and two have a level playing field. I mean, if many kids want to get into a college, how do you decide one versus another, not just on their GPAs, but on other things as well? Yeah. And then the last question we have is 
how has it affected you mentally to not be around your friends and not be able to talk with people in person? Uh, you know, being around your family all day, sometimes it takes a toll on certain oh, people. Oh, come on now. My dad definitely knows. So how has it affected you? Um, I, yeah, so I'm like, it's, uh, it's weird when I FaceTime my friends still, it's, you know, difficult to talk to them now because I don't, I'm not seeing them 24 seven. I'm not around people all the time, especially high school. My high school was really crowded and I was just constantly surrounded by people. So not having that was really weird at the beginning for me. And I just didn't know how to like handle it. But then I started kind of making myself, there's just this one hour to two hours period of time when I make it a point to talk to my friends, whether it's te texting them or FaceTiming them. Um, and that's definitely helped because you want to make sure to keep in contact with people other than your family. So. Absolutely. I, as, a, as a physician, I'll say three or four things and you guys are already doing that. But one is have structure to the day. Two, make sure you have adequate nutrition. And certainly I'm a supporter of taking some vitamins like vitamin C, D and some zinc. Three, uh, having some social interaction with your friends and peers, whether it be FaceTime or with Zoom or however you do it. And lastly, some time for activity outdoors, you know, maybe some a little walk, a little run, a little sun, those, and we'll get through it. And, and you know, a little time for meditation reflection is always beneficial. If you can f spare five, 10 minutes, just to keep things in context and always remembering that we're still very fortunate compared to a lot of people who've gone through tremendous hardship. So thank you, Samia and Mayank for your wonderful answers and we'll be in touch soon, okay? All right, thank you for having us. Take care, bye-bye. Now, just at the very end of the program, I wanted to introduce uh, a new idea that I've been thinking of. Uh, you know, a, a lot of our new centers around the coronavirus pandemic, just because, uh, you know, that's what's plaguing a lot of people's lives right now. And I understand that uh, it can get maybe even a little boring or a little bit repetitive to hear it over and over. And, uh, you know, the other major thing that's going on this year, as many of you know, is the U.S. presidential election. And I know that eventually we're going to have to tackle some of those issues. So I wanted to start early and I wanted to start to see some of the um, most important issues that affect Americans and have real discussions on them. So today we're going to take one of those issues, which is healthcare in the United States. There's an idea that uh, Biden have. It's called his Biden Initiative. Um, and it's basically to uh, reinstate the Obamacare mandate and build upon that mandate by offering a public option to all Americans if necessary. It's very different than Senator Bernie Sanders' program. Senator Sanders obviously dropped out of the race, but his plan was to provide for fully socialized medicine in the sense that the U.S. would eliminate the private insurance industry and go the way of providing free health care to every citizen. Trump believes in, uh, President Trump believes in reducing the restrictions on the healthcare industry to enforce or to improve competition and to lower costs. This is a very, very tough debate, but I know that my dad is very well spoken in this because he's a doctor and he lives this every day. What is your opinion on these, all these different plans? Yeah, as a physician, I can tell you that we, I know there's been a lot of uh, criticism of Obamacare, and I get it. It's not a perfect system, but we have to recognize it was a huge step forward. Prior to having Obamacare, pre-existing conditions would exclude a vast majority of Americans that needed health care. You just couldn't buy insurance. The insurance companies wouldn't sell it to you because you were not 
considered this was considered so if let's say you got insurance he'll say this condition was pre-existing because you had it before buying insurance so we're not going to cover it so it was terrible so it was a huge step forward it was very difficult to get done and i realized the arguments on both sides of the coin my approach is more humanitarian my goal is have i seen patients who have benefited from obamacare and absolutely not just one two ten hundreds of patients who would not have had the insurance and they would have delayed diagnosis and treatment for life-threatening illnesses remember i'm an oncologist to deal with cancer patients so this has allowed a lot of patients to come forward with their symptoms problems earlier is it perfect absolutely not the major problems as i see them are number one that the deductibles and the copays are too high and that is true because these are when insurance companies opened up these plans they had to because think about it this way i think of these plans as coverage for catastrophic illness okay i realize that small amount of medical expenses can be borne out of pocket you can have few hundred up to thousand dollars not many americans can do that but still but if you hit the hospital your insurance bill is going to run into tens of thousands of dollars which most americans cannot afford so this was a huge step forward that that covered that very well so we have to figure out a way to cut down on their copays and deductibles we can work on it the government can provide subsidies and cut that down number two was the issue that they would have less doctors taking it and the reason there were less doctors taking it is because initially there was a lot of problems getting payments as well as patients who would not have a consistently keep the insurance so we would have somebody come with an insurance card and then they wouldn't pay the premium they were out of it so the government can easily fix that problem by ensuring that there's a database where we can reliably check if somebody has active insurance or not before they incur the cost number three there's still too many americans who are falling through the cracks either they can't afford the their uh, premiums or they are just not uh, able to because the medicaid pro option was not adopted by a lot of states so i think uh, the correct plan is what um, senator biden has suggested uh, or vice president biden has suggested yeah. which is to have a public option so people cannot afford to get Obamacare, they should have a fallback plan. And yeah. there certainly should be income requirements and make it uh, strenuous so that's done. But it will improve our overall health, especially in this day and age. Imagine the stress families are already going through worrying about COVID. And guess what? If they get sick and have no insurance, that is a, that's, a, that's a societal cost. I mean, these are there's a very short-term way of thinking, which is saying everybody go find their own. No, we are in it. together for a lot of things so i really believe this should be done now what's your take on the uh difference between fully socialized medicine and biden's plan which is to build on obamacare yeah. i know that uh senator sanders is out of the race but i think all democrats and republicans acknowledge that sanders is ideas will influence the party for years to come and what sanders was proposing was eliminating the private insurance industry by giving free health care to all Americans no questions asked what's your opinion well again it's a very very controversial topic we have several examples to look at and those examples have the pros and cons i mean as the canadian health system is one the national health service of england or united kingdom is another one and both have their strong points and both have their you know detractors because there are definitely more delays built in there is a certain amount of redundancy built in uh, the costs sometimes seem to go up So my take is that I think in our current I'm a more a pragmatist what can be done 
is it really practical to dismantle the entire private healthcare industry? Absolutely not. There are tens of thousands of jobs that will be lost, the amount of pain, hardship, and it just won't happen. There's not the political will to do it. So let's be practical. What is achievable? What's achievable is not a fully socialized medicine, but you have a component of the private payer system competing with the public health option. Let that be. Let people even have the option of choosing. Maybe Medicare can charge a premium and say, if Blue Cross has a cheaper premium, go to Blue Cross and get it from them. I think that's the better way to doing it. Currently. That's a very meaningful argument. I hope that we can continue these discussions over the next few weeks. And of course, as always, we hope that you'll join us again next Saturday. Where we'll recap the next week's news and give you another set of discussions that we can all enjoy. I want to thank you all for joining and I want to thank my dad for joining me today. Thank you, Vishnu. Great, yeah. great discussing with you. Thank you all. Join us next Saturday. Uh, have a good day.